Start with a story about a little boy, actually a young boy. This young boy lived out in the country with his family. And they were in that isolated part of the country where they didn't have an interior bathroom, so they had to use an outhouse. And that young boy hated that outhouse with a passion. It was really, really hot and filled with flies in the summer, and it was cold. You'd freeze. Well, you know what you'd freeze in the winter. And it stunk all the time. So he decided, you know what? It's right by the river. So the next time that river rises, I'm going to tip that outhouse into that river and let it float away, never to be seen again. Well, one spring rain comes, and sure enough, the river rises, and this young boy sees his chance to get rid of that stinky old outhouse, and he gets himself a big old stick, and he goes over there and wedges it underneath, and he tips it right off the bank and into the river, and there it goes, and he's rejoicing in his spirit. Till he gets to the house that evening, and his dad says, Son, we're going to the woodshed tonight after supper. Why, Dad? Well, this afternoon, someone tipped the outhouse into the river and it floated away, and I think it probably was you, son. Was it? Yes, Dad. Thinking on his feet real quickly, he says, But Dad, i got to tell you something. In school, we read this story about George Washington. And George Washington chopped down a cherry tree, and when they accused him, he didn't lie, and because he told the truth, he didn't get in trouble. And the dad says, that might be true, son, but George Washington's father wasn't up in that cherry tree. What a picture. (laughs) Now, you and I have probably never tipped over an outhouse with your dad in it into the river. However, I think we can relate and identify with this young guy at least on three points. First point being this. There is something inside of us that wants to do the wrong thing. Point number one. Point number two. When we do the wrong thing, it usually affects others. And point number three that we could agree on, that there are usually consequences to that wrong thing or that wrong choice that we make. In this week's story, we're going to look again at the life of David. And we're first going to look at a pattern that we do not want to follow that's demonstrated for us clearly in Scripture and in the life of David. And then we're going to take a little deeper look into some biblical truths or some biblical principles, biblical concepts that they can often confuse us and they can discourage us if we don't understand them. And I'm hoping and praying today that as I share these, I bring clarity and not more confusion. Because they're critical that we understand what they are And if there is confusion and misunderstanding, the enemy will use them against us continually to oppress us, depress us, cause us to feel defeated. The title of my message is, actually, I got two of them. A Pattern Not to Follow, and then the subtitle, David's Big Mistake. Just a quick review. David. Boy, when he was found... 
in his father Jesse's home as a little shepherd boy, he would be the least likely one to be thought of as a future hero. He was the little runt of the family out taking care of the sheep. And yet, he would be this picture of an underdog who truly, truly overcame and God used in a mighty way. If you were going to write another title, it could be the shepherd who became king. That would be David. Shepherd who became king. David, as a shepherd, had confronted lions, bears. He confronted Goliath. And he did all of this with basically his bare hands and a really, really, really bold faith in God. It took 14 years from the time he was anointed to be king by by Samuel till the time he was king, and that was 14 years of training which is a kind way of saying it was 14 years of him being prepared in a very difficult way, running for his life most of the time from Saul, who was going to try to kill him. 14 years of training. After he was finally set in as king, Israel was blessed. David was blessed. Prosperity, everything he did, every battle they were in, they won. Then the Bible has just a gut-wrenching story when you look at the story and remember who David was. This underdog who had became king, the anointed of God to be king, described by God as a man after his own heart, loved the Lord, had the purposes of God in his heart. And then it says, in the spring, when kings go to war, David was back in his palace. When kings go to war, the king goes to war with his armies. He was in the wrong place. And the story tells us he went up on the roof of his little palace. Who knows? Looking at the stars, knowing the heart of David, he might have even been up there worshiping God. We don't know for sure, but we do know this. He saw something. As he looked over the roof of his palace, down below he could see another smaller home. And on the roof of that home was a woman taking a bath. A beautiful woman. A very beautiful woman. A very married woman. And he looked at her. He desired her. He found out who she was. Sent people to get her. And he brought her to the palace. And he slept with her. And shortly thereafter, she lets him know that she's pregnant. Well, David confounds his problem as so often does when we sin. It just gets worse. One sin leads to another. He came up with a plan. His first plan, plan A, was Uriah was, her, was Bathsheba's husband. He's out at war where he's supposed to be as a loyal soldier. Send for Uriah and have him come back. What soldier who's been away from war, separated from his wife, isn't going to come home and go have intimacy with his wife. But Uriah wouldn't do it. He was a man of character and honor and loyalty, and he said, you know what? All my brothers are out there on the battlefield sleeping in tents on the ground. How could I possibly sleep with my wife? Threw a little wrench in David's plan. Plan says, next thing I'll do is get him drunk. That'll work for sure. We'll get him drunk, he'll go home to his wife. They'll have sex. The pregnancy can be explained away, he'd be the father. Plan didn't work. Even drunk, he had more integrity 
than David was experiencing at that moment. He would sleep in the door still of David's house, his palace. Plan A didn't work. Plan B was even worse. He writes a letter and gives it to Uriah and says, here, take this. He's delivering his own death sentence. He takes it to the general and he gives it to him and, and it says, put Uriah at the front of the line where the most violent warfare is taking place so that he'll be killed. And that's exactly what happens. He's killed. David brings Bathsheba into the palace, marries her, so now he's got another wife, and his secret is hidden. And he can become king and do his duties again. Not so fast, not so much. Nathan, a prophet, a prophet of God, came to David and he says to David, David, got something to share with you and it's a parable. And it's something like this. He says, there's this very, very, very wealthy man. He's got lots of livestock. He's got lots of sheep, lots of goats, lots of oxen. And he's going to sacrifice but instead of taking one of his many, many sheep, he's got his eye on his neighbor's sheep. He only has one, one lamb. And he takes that guy's one lamb and sacrifices it. And you can almost sense the anger in the story of David's anger rising up within him. And Nathan says, Nathan the prophet says, what should be done with this man? And David goes, kill him. And Nathan hits him right between the eyes with a stone like Goliath took, and he says, that man is you. And instantly, David understood what the message from God was. The joy of that wedding to Bathsheba turned to sorrow very quickly as the son conceived in that adulterous affair died. David repents. God forgives him. But after that, things would never be the same for David nor David's family. I hope you're reading the story as we're going along in this message because I can only touch so little of it. But it's so powerful. The pattern that we see here that we're not to follow is a pattern as old as the Garden of Eden. It's the same pattern that we saw with Eve and Adam. With David, he's, he's where he doesn't belong and he sees something. You know, he might have seen her by accident. He's up there walking around and he's looking around his kingdom and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. Wow, if he'd have just turned away at that moment. But he saw, and the next step is desire. He desired her. His lust overtook him. His lust overtook his morality. It overtook his fear of the Lord. Regardless of the fact that David was married, this woman is married, adultery is punishable by death, he desired this woman. He didn't even keep it a secret. He got a hold of some of his servants and says, go find out who she is and bring her here. I want her. He's disregarding the law of God. He wanted her. He wanted her more than he wanted to honor God. And this is that guy who God himself described as a man after God's own heart. 
He saw, he desired, and then he took. He took, knowing full well what he was doing was wrong. He abused the power of his position, forgetting even at that time that it was a position that God himself had given him. He took what he wanted. He saw, he desired, he took, and then there's the consequences. The fourth step of this pattern. Hopefully you've read the story. Bathsheba became pregnant. As I shared, he tried to cover his sins. Didn't work. And the baby dies. Eve had a similar problem in the garden. Same pattern. She saw the fruit on the tree that the Word of God had prohibited her from taking and eating. She saw that it was good and it pleased her eye, it says. She desired the fruit, gaining wisdom, or at least that's what she thought it would do as she believed the lie of the enemy. She took it. She took the fruit. She took the word of the serpent over the word of God. And the consequences. Well, first they hid from God because they knew they were naked. They'd sinned. It destroyed the relationship with God that they had. They destroyed the relationship in a sense between the two of them. And you and I and every human being except Jesus Christ born since then has suffered the consequences of Eve's decision in the garden. The pattern we do not want to follow. That look, see, desire, take, and the consequences. In the New Testament, James writes in James chapter 1, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There's a pattern. The same pattern, just worded differently. In the Gospel, or in the book of James, the New Testament. Going to now take a little bit of a left turn into four biblical, and I don't even know what to call them for sure. Biblical truths, I believe, biblical concepts, biblical principles. But they're biblical things that we need to understand and we need to have them deep in our heart. Because if we don't, it will cause nothing but trouble and give the enemy a whole lot of liberty in our lives that we don't want to give him. The first one is simply this, sin. Sin versus temptation. You know, when I sat and I read this story, one of the thoughts that came to me was, boy, Saul. Saul disobeyed God. He sacrificed in the role of a priest when he wasn't called to be a priest. He didn't, didn't ask God when he should go to battle. And I understand that. And God got so upset with him, he removed his anointing from him, and the Spirit left him. And said, you're no longer fit to be king. And then I'm looking at David. And I'm saying, wait a minute. Now David lusted after this woman. Took her, a married woman. Destroyed this man's family. Killed this man. Lied and did all these things. And David's a man after God's own heart. Saul and David. If you look at that, you can say, I don't get it. In the lower story alone, it doesn't make any sense. If Saul deserved to have the Spirit leaving the anointing gone and to be removed from office, certainly David did. But he wasn't. 
And we can read in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, these mighty men and women of God, David's name's right there. This man after God's own heart. What was the difference? It was the way they responded to God. Saul made excuses. He justified what he did. He tried to rationalize his sin. And David broke before the Lord. Sin and temptation are not the same things. We need to understand this. When does sin become sin? Now, when I say temptation is not sin, remember this. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus was tempted just like all other men were tempted. And if something's a temptation, obviously there's something desirous about what's tempting you. And it says Jesus was tempted just like you and me in every way. But he never sinned. Temptation is not sin. But it can lead to sin quickly. And this is what we need to understand. Where does temptation end and sin begin? I believe if you look at that scripture I just read from James, it says, Lust or desire conceived gives birth to sin. That word conceived in the Greek means to take a hold of, to seize for oneself, to make one a prisoner. When that lust, that desire, that temptation comes, we have got just a split second to decide what we're going to do with it. Right there at that instant. There's that temptation, there's that thought. Every temptation comes in the form of a thought. The devil is a liar and a deceiver and he messes with our mind. David, at that moment, he could have been walking. He literally could have been praising God. We don't know. And he sees this woman. If he'd have just went, wow, God, you're good, and then turned away. Said, man, you do some great work, God. But I can't even look at that again. <clears throat> if he'd have done that, my could have been different. But that desire took hold. Temptation, I believe, becomes a sin when you can let go of the thought, but you choose not to. And I believe most of us know exactly when that moment is because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in every believer. And that Holy Spirit is going to convict us of that sin. When we take that thought and we decide, you know what? We're going to host it. Go ahead. Roll around in my mind for a while. I'm going to nourish it. Feed it. All of a sudden, that thought becomes a video. And before long, that video is causing great desire. Not in just in the area of sexual sin. It can be in any area of sin. Any area. What do we do with it? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this. We demolish. We destroy it. We destroy or demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. In other words, anything that's not of God, we can destroy it and we can demolish it. How? By taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. When that thought comes, hold it up against the mirror of the Word of God, and if it doesn't line up, you've got to get rid of it right now. Take captive that thought. If David would have taken captive that thought, but he didn't. 
So the first biblical truth, I want to make sure we understand that there's a difference between sin and temptation. Temptation handled rightly is going to come. Temptation is going to come. It's going to come over and over. Handled rightly, it does not become sin. Handled wrongly, it leads us down that pattern that we want to avoid. The second biblical truth I want to talk about is forgiveness. Forgiveness. How many of you know God is willing to forgive? It's even more than that. He wants to forgive. He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross so that it was just for him to forgive. He wants to forgive. There is sometimes confusion about forgiveness. <clears throat> if you are a believer, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've taken the blood that was shed on the cross and made that blood your sacrifice, accepted what he did on your behalf, I hope you know that your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. I'm forgiven. Let's hear that once. I'm forgiven. Louder. Do you believe it? It's not conditional. It's not dependent upon anything. It's not dependent how, clo how clean you keep your nose from here on out. If you are saved, your sins are forgiven. People don't believe that. It's absolutely biblically true. Jesus died for the sins that I committed when I was a kid. Thank God. He died for the sins I'm committing now. And he's died and forgave the sins I'm going to commit. That's not a license to commit them. It's just true. They're forgiven. If it's conditional, if it's dependent upon something, it's not forgiveness. I'm going to read a couple, three scriptures just quickly. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. How can you pass from death into life? There's only one way. One way. Believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And he did what he said he did. And his blood was shed and your sins are forgiven. If my sins are not forgiven, I have not passed from death into life. I am still dead. God, it's quiet. We'll go with that's being good. He, Ephesians 1. So we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. There it is again. His grace is so amazing that He shed His blood. The cost of our freedom to forgive our sins. And in Romans 3, 23 and 24, it says, For all, for everyone, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of sin. The only way we are free from the penalty of sin if sin has been dealt with by God and it's been forgiven. Otherwise, we're still guilty and under the penalty of sin. When we accept Christ's death on our behalf, God takes you and me as a sinner, 
from a position of being alienated from God. Hostile. There's hostility between you and me and God. And he takes us from that state to a state of forgiveness and into a right relationship with himself. Forgiveness is an amazing thing. Amazing thing. Forgiveness of sin does not cancel consequences, however. David, Eve in the garden, you and me, we live with some natural consequences and sometimes even the discipline of God. But we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But for now, here's what I want to just get into our hearts. When you believe and trust in God through what Jesus Christ did in his death and resurrection for your salvation, your forgiveness is dealt with. You are forgiven. Past, present, future. It's complete. Boy, I hope you believe me. <laughs> I hope you believe me. But what about me? I sin. I sin. I had to confess sin in my office this morning before I came in here. That's what happens when you're working on your sermon. <laughs> it's disgusting. But it's so good. Confession is the third point. Sin and temptation, forgiveness and confession. What do you and I do when we mess up? What do we do? Let me start with this. You do not lose your salvation. Amen? You do not lose your salvation. And matter of fact, this is where it's confusing, and I've been studying this for weeks since Bob and I had a discussion on the phone one day. And it still confuses me if I'm not careful. I still need to do something with that sin. But it's not get forgiveness because it's already forgiven. And where I get confused is because I still use words like confess and repent. And it can get confusing in my head. So I'm going to just start with this. Let's first look at David's confession. He's talking about his confession. We can see it in Psalms 51, but we also see here in Psalms 32. This is David. And he says, When I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable and I groaned all day long. Man, that sounds like guilt. Shame and condemnation to me. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide them. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. Boy, do I bet he took a deep breath that day. It felt so good. When we confess our sins... We're not telling God something he doesn't already know. Amen? He already knows. And when I confess my sins, he's not forgiving me of that sin. Because it's already been forgiven. So what's taken place? Confession. I'm going to give you a definition. First I'm going to... Did I put the Greek thing up there? Yeah, I did. Okay. Homologa A.O comes from two words. Homo meaning the same. Logos meaning to speak. What it means when we confess is we are speaking the same thing that the Lord says. But we need to understand it's more than just speaking and saying, you know, if I tell somebody, <clears throat> I think the sky is blue. 
you look outside there and it's just green and black and red and you go, yeah, I guess the sky is blue. You don't believe it. You're not going to go to bed tonight thinking, boy, that Mike, he was right. But you confessed what I said. That's not what it just means. What it means when we confess it, it means we are professing it in agreement that it's truth and we're going to live by that profession. That's what it means. And this is where it gets a little confusing in my head because that sounds a whole lot like repentance. Acknowledging what I did wrong, agreeing with God and turning and walking away from it. But the difference, I believe, is simply this. <clears throat> my sins are already forgiven. Let me give it this way. If I would ever offend my wife, it could go something like this. I know this is hypothetical and it's hard to see it, but Cindy and I are married. And if I turn into a real jerk, again, this is hypothetical. Thank you, brother. <laughs> if I turn into a real jerk and I sin against her, I call her names, I do whatever it is that a jerk does, I've forgotten. <laughs> am I still married to her? Of course I am. She's still my wife. I'm still her husband <laughs> on parole or probation. <laughs> but the reality is I'm still her husband. She's still my wife. But boy, oh boy, is our relationship in a bad place. That intimacy, that unity has got this thing in the way. And, I, you know, it's not a good example when I make Cindy a god in this scenario, but <laughs> better than me. Really, the problem wasn't her, it was me. And I can walk away from that, and she probably feels bad, but I really feel miserable. And I know there's only one way to fix it. i got to go crawling over broken glass <laughs> to my wife and say, I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? Now here's where the picture breaks down, because God's already forgiven us. The sins are taken care of. But you know what? He's going to cleanse me. My cleansing is involved in my confession, my repentance, whatever you want to call it, so that my relationship can be restored. We need to understand what confession is. We need to not fall into the trap of somehow thinking that because I've sinned, I've lost my salvation, or that because I've sinned, God's got to forgive me again. He's did it already. He died on a cross, and Jesus Christ is Son. Forgiveness is taken care of, but I need to confess my sin so I can be in right relationship with him. There's a grace that saves. Positionally, our sins are forgiven the moment we get saved. Positionally, it's dealt with. Practically, I mess up a lot. And one sin leads to another sin until another sin if we don't deal with it. <clears throat> and sin is like building this veil or this wall between me and God. And it's not his wall. So I confess my sins. In 1 John 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, it says, If we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And when we do that, the truth isn't even in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His word is not in us. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. That's the part of that verse that confuses me a little bit. 
thought they're already forgiven. You know, check this out. I'm not a theologian. Okay? But here's what I read that as I studied the original language. God already died in Jesus Christ, his son, to forgive my sins. And he is faithful and righteous to his promise that that's taken care of. So they are forgiven. He is faithful and righteous to forgive my sins. It's past, it's done. But I need fresh cleansing. I need to confess. I need to get this junk. Because if I don't, the enemy starts to poke and prod and lie and deceive and I start to buy into it. Think about this. If you're a Christian and you really believe that your sins are forgiven, boy, is the enemy lose a lot of his arsenal. Remember when you did? Forgiven. Remember when you said? Forgiven. Remember when you? Forgiven. It's dealt with. It's dealt with. Boy, oh boy, his arsenal is shrinking. And all of a sudden, if he comes with something that you haven't confessed yet, okay, Lord, I agree with what you said. Speaking to my wife that way is wrong. Forgive me, I won't do that again. Well, I'll try not to do that again. I confess it. Deal with it. Remember, sin that hasn't been confessed does not change your standing with God in terms of salvation. It doesn't. You're saved. You are, you aren't. Okay? But it really can hinder your relationship. So we need to confess our sins. So sin versus temptation, forgiveness, and confession. And the last thing I want to talk about, and this can be the most painful, is consequences. You know, David, he was king. He could pretty much do whatever he wanted. And he orchestrated this great big conspiracy to cover up his sin, but the Bible says your sin will find you out. Everything you and I do in the dark, even in the darkness of our mind and our thought life, God knows. And we will be found out. Hopefully it's the Holy Spirit quietly whispering in your ear, Mike, I think you better confess that sin. But in David's case, it wasn't quite that easy. And in our case, it's not always. Consequences will happen. Sin gives birth to more sin if it's not confessed. Look at Eve in the garden, her and Adam. David, if you've read the story, man, he's king. God's anointing. He's a man after God's own heart. He has this affair with Bathsheba. They have a son. And that's a big deal, especially in that culture. But the son dies because of the adulterous sin. His family. He has a son named Ammon. Ammon rapes his half-sister Tamar. Family's in trouble. He has another son named Absalom. Absalom so hates Ammon and he's so filled with bitterness towards Ammon because he raped Tamar that Absalom plots and has his brother murdered. Then Absalom, with his personality, starts to get people on his side and he leads a rebellion against King David. He creates a civil war, if you would. 
And then in the battle, Absalom, here's a picture for you. He gets his hair caught in the branches of a tree and he's hanging there helpless. And they come and they throw spears through his body. The consequences of David's sin were huge. And David grieved through all of those consequences. He grieved. His heart was broken. I have, when, he, when Absalom was killed, it just devastated him. But in the midst of that grieving for the consequences, and I am sure he was pounding heaven's gate to God through all of this. We see it in the Psalms that David has written. But in all of that, he never lost his faith and love and awe for God. He went through those consequences with dignity and the love of the Lord. As hard as it could be. Consequences are not, we need to hear this clearly, they are not the result or the fallout from a lack of forgiveness. If we start thinking that way, we're starting to go down this slippery slope because if I'm a Christian and I'm experiencing consequences and I start to think it's because I, I haven't been forgiven, I'm in trouble, right? Because I'm forgiven if I'm a Christian. So the enemy can twist this stuff so quickly. It's not the, con it's not the result or consequences of unforgiven sin, but really what it is, it's an ongoing reminder of the seriousness of sin and the ripple effect that our sin has. We can affect generations in our family tree with sin that's not confessed, even with sin that is confessed. It's almost as if consequences are what we live with in the world to remind us of the result of sin. So what do we do with all this? Well, first of all, avoid the pattern of sin. Man, stop it in that first thought. Take it captive. Whatever we desire, we use the picture of seeing, but it can be a desirous thought. It can be, it can be a thought of greed or it can be anything, root bitterness. It can be whatever it is. We need to stop it and say, does it line up with God's word? Bitterness, envy, unity, greed, does that line up with God's word? No, none of it does. Stop it immediately. Lust for anything. Sexual lust, lust of the things of the world. Stop it immediately. We need to respond to the temptation before sin is conceived. We need to be confident and secure in your salvation. I want to encourage you this way with that. If you can honestly not answer this question with an affirmative yes, are you absolutely 100% totally certain of your salvation? You need to talk to me or Bob or one of the other elders or another brother and sister in Christ because the Bible says we are told these things that we may know. We may know. We, there's no wishy-washy there. You either are or you aren't. And if you think you might be, let's deal with it and make certain. Make certain. If you don't know what it takes to become a Christian, you might not be one. If somebody asks you this question, which I ask people all the time when I meet with them, if I wasn't a Christian and you tell me you are, and I look at you and go, Gal, I want what you got, can you tell me how to get it? 
boy, if they can't, I'm kind of a little concerned. Some of you have been in that room when I've asked you that question. Sometimes we just can't articulate it, but we know it. I get that. But if you're not certain, man, don't leave here today not certain. Confess our sins. Restore that intimacy with God. You know, so often we get in those dry times. And I'm not saying dry times are always the result of unconfessed sin, but that's the first place to start. Sometimes we're in a wilderness and we, we really don't know why. We don't know for sure what it is God's trying to teach us. But a good place to start is, Holy Spirit, show me if there's anything. The Holy Spirit will speak to us. The Word of God will speak to us. And sometimes it's painful, but go to a trusted brother and sister in Christ. They might be able to shine the light of something in your life that you don't see. And lastly, re respond to the consequences like David did and not like Saul. You know, nobody likes to go through them, but God is still the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. No matter what I'm going through, His love for me isn't conditional. So, Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the instructions that's in your word. God, I thank you that my sins are forgiven. I thank you that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are your children and we will be spending eternity with you and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We thank you for that.